So on this episode of the podcast, I'm going to ask a urban warfare expert to help us understand what it would be like if he was trying to defend one of these embattled cities in Ukraine. You don't want to miss this. Stay tuned. In a world of incompetent bosses, micromanagers, and petty tyrants, one management professor claims that he can help you become the kind of leader that you would want to follow. You are listening to The Leadersmith. Now, here is your host, Darren Gertis. Okay, so I am here with John Spencer. John Spencer is an urban warfare expert. Um, I'm thrilled to have him here because what he's going to do, he's going to help you walk in the shoes of somebody who had to defend one of these cities in Ukraine. Like, what would it be like if you, just imagine yourself, you have to defend your block, your neighborhood, your city. So we're going to go through this. I'm going to ask him to tell me what it is that that he would do as an expert. But let me give you a little bit about his resume before we get into this. He's an award-winning scholar, professor, author, combat vet. He's considered the world's leading expert on urban warfare. He's the chair of the urban warfare studies, of uh, uh, chair of urban warfare studies at the Madison Policy Forum. He was recently the chair of urban warfare studies at the Modern War Institute at West Point. He served over 25 years, and this I think is the most important credential that he has here, 25 years in the, in the US Army as an infantry soldier. And even more than that, he went from lieutenant to major, but before that he went from private to sergeant first class. Uh, and in doing so, you see things very differently as a private than you do when you're in the upper ranks. And I think that colors your perspective and helps you have a certain empathy for the people that are doing the work. So with all that, I'm going to say, John, thank you for coming on the program and uh, tell us what like, OK, so the war in Ukraine has been raging for many weeks now. I mean, I think everybody's surprised. I think the U.S. administration is somewhat surprised that it went this long. Like they were expecting it to fold in a couple days. I think Putin's very surprised. Uh, I'm not sure how surprised the Ukrainians are. I think some of them are, but the will to fight is evident. So put yourself in a place of don't worry about which city, uh, but just a, an urban environment, a city that's under Russian attack. You know that the city is starting to be surrounded. What do you do? Take it, take it from here. Uh, well, thank you so much. And to be honest, that, that's exactly what I've done recently. So when this war kicked off, I saw civilians being called to arms in Ukraine. So I started putting out tweets on my Twitter based on my personal experiences and based on really more importantly years of experience on seeing and studying what what works in urban warfare um, and what how simple some aspects are i started putting out information on if i was in any city in the world just just to kind of give the ambiguity what are the things mm -hmm. that i would tell people to do and whether you're in the military or really importantly if you're not and you have no experience in war or warfare the things that could be done to really help defend cities so the defense is the strongest form of war that's been known for centuries and military scholars have written about it and that makes sense right if you can stand in one place especially in a protected place and the person who is attacking you has to cross an open area or cross a street to come at you of course your position is stronger this and it can actually reduce the effects of of the military who's attacking you um, so I actually put out, I put all these thoughts into a, a mini manual. So number one is 
as an old soldier, as an old instructor of our ranger school, which is the U.S. Army's elite uh, small unit tactics school, I know instructions as leaders have to be simple, uh, especially in times of war when you know, the stress is high, the, the panic, the fear. We all feel fear in war. Um, and that courage is not the absence of fear. It's just you know the continuing to move forward. So instructions have to be very simple. So if I was in, in a city in anywhere in the world and, it, and somebody is headed my way, a, a, a really big, bad enemy force, the first thing that I would do is organize civilians into small groups. Right. War is not an individual act, no matter what. It's not Rambo off by himself. Uh, it, yeah. it's, I always thought that the, the stupidest slogan was an army of one or whatever. Yeah. That, remember that a number of years yeah. back? Like yeah. that, That's not how it works. Colin Powell talked about this is a gang fight. That's why he ordered extra carrier battle groups uh, into the Persian Gulf. Anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, you know, the, the, I wrote a book about this aspect of, despite the history of warfare, it has been proven in multiple studies against in, in multiple militaries, not just the Western militaries, to include the Germans. Why do people fight? Why do soldiers face the fear of dying? And it's always because of the people to the left and right. It's right. about cohesion. So if I'm, a, if I'm a leader of a small group in war, and it, even if they're civilians, I want to give them somebody to the left and right. I don't put somebody in, you know, by themselves and just say, go, go fight. So now you're talking about that on a small scale, but I think Zelensky has done this masterfully at the large level, like calling out all Ukrainians saying, like, he didn't flee. If he had fled to Paris and was in a safe, posh hotel saying, yeah, go and take up arms against those bad, bad Russians, it would have fallen flat. But when he went into, or when he stayed in, in uh, Kiev and said, I'm here, Yatut, I'm here, <laughs> like, well, we know where you are. They know where you are. You're the most wanted man as far as they're concerned. And he said, my wife is here. We are not traitors. My children are here. Like, <laughs> I, I, I had a conversation with my wife after that. I was like, if I was Zelensky, I would have been sending you out of the country. <laughs> she was like, if I was her, I would have gone. <laughs> but, but yeah, it was powerful that he stood. And because he stood, they then had a very clear, coherent signal. No, we're all together. Let's fight. Yeah, no, I, I mean, absolutely. If he had have left, and to be honest, let's talk about Afghanistan. If the leader, when the leader left, the war was over. If Zelensky would have left day one, two, three, mm -hmm. the war would have been over. Um, we fight for leaders like he's the leader that we all want. Mm -hmm. uh, and his speech to the U.S. Congress, I mean, wasn't that moving? It gave wow. me goosebumps. It really yeah. did. I would fight and die for that man. Uh, and I, and you this know, is, so with that, with that speech showing the video and then starting the next sentence in English. I was like, whoa. I mean, he, like he, he, he highlighted 9-11 and, and Pearl Harbor and MLK. And, and then that video was just so moving, seeing, like, seeing the uh, parent cry over its dead child. And, 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 and then he you know, tur turned to English and finished his last two paragraphs in English. Like, the, the, I give this guy high marks all around on leadership. Okay, yeah, he'll, go, he'll go down as the Winston Churchill, the George Washington of leaders of the world. He really, I, and I, I don't say that lightly. And I've studied and I've, I've fought for men. Um, this is about understanding what it takes to fight. And you have to give people 
you have to give them hope. You have to give them a cause, mm -hmm. uh, and you have to be you have to be there. You have to. Yep. I mean, that's you you know this from whether that's the the small group to the national level. Yep, it matters. Okay, so men on the right and left. Yep, you want to give them that, not Rambo. Yep. Right. Rambo not is Hollywood. Yep, you got to get them. You got to get these into small groups, and then give them things that. So war is about control, or, or you know, the other aspect of knowing what it takes to fight. You're so scary. You have to give people the semblance of control of their environment. Okay. Um, sometimes that can be easy as giving them a simple thing to do. Right. I, I talked about simple instruction. So. Number one in war today is in a defense is protecting yourself. Okay. So you, you have to give, I would give these small groups, the, the, the number one step is you always have to think about how to protect yourself, not how to attack the enemy. Uh, the modern battlefield is a very lethal battlefield. If you can be seen from the sky, I, as a military guy can hit you long before I get there, whether that's with a, a rocket, a mortar, or an artillery round, I'm going to get you. What the urban does is it, it makes that a lot harder, but it doesn't prevent it. So I would put out very strong um, instructions on how to move around and hide what they're doing. Even if they're at a checkpoint, you, you can put things above your head that cover you. Gotcha. You can move through the buildings instead of just walking down the street to get where you're going. That becomes critical because you can't fight if you're dead. Right. So these groups have to understand that they always have to think about be, how they can be seen, no matter what. Even if they don't have a weapon, if they have a Molotov cocktail, which we can talk about, um, number one step to preparing to fight and to defend is to hide. And, and that may seem almost counterintuitive, but even if you're building things, you can build them to blend in, right? We call it camouflage or the things that you do yourself on. You can move through buildings. You can put things above your head. And then the other aspect is the cell phone, to be honest. Um, and I didn't put this out initially, but on the modern battlefield, if, you, if you're talking on an open cell phone, that's a part of being seen. Mm. And, and we're seeing that in, in Ukraine, and we've seen it in other wars. And, and to be honest, as a military guy, if, if you do that, then, again, you, you're, you can be seen. And if you can be seen, you can be attacked. Sure. So... Don't don't carry a cell phone around with you. If you, that would be part of my simple instructions about you know, how we're going to communicate as a force within the three man group, three five man or woman group. It's going to be just voice communication. Now you said that's interesting. You said three to five man group. So you're looking at a team, not even a squad size level, as as the as the unit that you're going to focus on first. Yep, absolutely. You're, so I, that's counterintuitive. I, I would have thought you would have been like, here's a large gathering. Let's get everybody together. No, you're just going to start deploying these small units as quickly as you can. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can talk about, you know, but yeah, so we know that three to five is a very powerful urban force, right? Because it's small enough to where it can still punch really hard. It can really attack really effectively using the urban train, but it's also decentralized enough of your formations that if you lose, to be frank, if you lose one, you can, you're going to keep fighting. If you put a platoon, uh, you know, 40 men or more in a single location and something can happen and you lose all of that, then you could potentially lose. Um, urban defense is about stopping the enemy from coming in. Okay. It's just pretty, pretty clear. So once you gather them, help them become invisible. What do you, what's the next step? Next step is putting up barriers. And I'm talking 
massive thousands, every street, every alley, every door, block it, it all. Again, the enemy doesn't, isn't just coming to kill you. He's coming to get inside the city. Um, most of the times, the objective is just to get to the middle of the city and basically turn around and say you own the city now. You don't really have to go through every house, depending on what the goal is. Uh, that, so if you put up these massive barriers, and I'm talking concrete barriers or, or buses or dump trucks, uh, my instructions would go out and for days and for weeks block every road that we're not using. So practically, how do they do that? Drive a bus there and flip it over? What I mean? Yeah, drive a bus there, break the key off, take the battery. That's that's pretty pretty straightforward. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So uh, it's not even that hard. No, I mean, no, it's not that. Wow. Hard. Uh, and, and dump trucks are very really this. There's a lot of these things that are very counter kind of common sense but counterintuitive, like heavy dump trucks, cranes, all this. Nobody can get past. Not a tank. Nothing. Huh. Uh, and it, and it, it would stop. Uh, you'd have to figure out a way to get around it. So you want to do so, that. So do you, do you look at, at certain choke points in doing that or just say everywhere or both simultaneously? Um, both. So if you need the road, right? So some of this is you, you need some aspects of the city, right? Civilians need to get to grocery stores. You need to be able to bring supplies in and out. You still can put up these barriers, uh, but there's one called an S-turn. Like most people who've ever been through a checkpoint anywhere in the world, there's this, you can build this barrier that makes you turn, right? Right, <laughs> I'm turn at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that again in the in the first parts of a war in the first, to be honest, the first parts of Ukraine, you saw Russian trucks just zooming through small little villages and towns. Right. That that is what they want. They want speed. Speed is security. Mm-hmm. So even if you put up an S barrier, that makes them slowly turn. Uh, and, and and when somebody is slowly turning, they're vulnerable to attack. To sure. be honest. Uh, so even if you need the road, so yeah, so do this everywhere with heavy things. Uh, I'm not a fan of sandbags, actually. So I, I wouldn't be telling anybody to fill a sandbag. The urban environment is full of stuff that is very powerful, like cement. So rocks and pieces of buildings that got blown up. Maybe. And there's plenty of that around, depending on which city yeah. they're in. So th- it is. It would. It's. It's crazy that this would be my first step. Before I even talk about weapons and being able to shoot, is to go out and build barriers and basically close the castle gates. Okay. It, some, yeah, of this yeah. is, some of this is ancient, but it's just as effective. Uh, you want to slow them or stop them. In some aspects, you want to completely stop them, right? So blow bridges. And the military does this and because the attacking military can't cross water. Even if it has bridging capabilities, they're very limited. So, and the Ukraine seemed to have done that early on with the, the bridges coming across from Belarus. They and did. It seemed like it was effective. Okay, so you want to close the gas gates, then what? Then um, dig tunnels, to be honest. Dig tunnels? Yep. So, I would never have thought that, but so, that's why I'm a, <laughs> a management professor, not what you are. Yep. Dig tunnels. So one is right. look, or let's just say look down. Um, no military is going to attack a city without bombing it first. Uh, even us, okay. to be calling, I, I've done in the United States. If I can see a target, right, that, that's not doing a good job of being invisible, um, I'm going to attack it with any type of round I have long before I get there. Uh, militaries don't like to fight in urban terrain. 
Sure. So us as the defenders, my small little three five man groups, once the barriers are up, have to have a place to hide. And some of that's picking the right building, right? So, uh, but th- there are three phases to the attack that's going to happen, and in all three phases involve a lot of bombing. Mm-hmm. So even if you're standing, if you're standing next to your checkpoint, not hiding like I told you in step one, you're wrong. If you, but then even after you get the barrier up, that's going to stop somebody. You need to have an underground space to be able to get to very right. quickly when the bombs start falling. So, so uh, could they use the uh, the subways or? Absolutely. Yeah, so the, absolutely. In in places like Kiev and Odessa, have literally thousands of miles of underground structures from subways to catacombs to water tunnels. Um, but I think as a as a person who was on the, if I was on the ground, we think that most people understand the cities they live in, but my experience is we don't. Like I've been to New York City and talked to police who really don't know what's down there and they don't go down there. Uh, so you have to start looking down if you're defending a city. And if there's not, a, this is the part about digging. If there's not underground underneath you, start digging. A three to five man civilian team with a very small hand shovel can actually dig a massive uh, depth and length of a tunnel. So you want to build tunnels to hide in, to survive that bombing, but also to move. In the perfect scenario, and the Israelis do this masterfully, you never want to put yourself on a street or an alley in in an urban fight. Mm -hmm. You're either putting a hole in a wall or you're moving in a tunnel you dug between houses. You never want to make yourself an easy target. So step three is dig tunnels or at least do reconnaissance and know what's under your feet. Are you still now at this point in step three, you're still just dealing with your small teams. You haven't even assembled them into something larger yet. Correct. Wow. I would have gotten this all wrong. Okay. Keep going. What's after tunnels? So after tunnels, right? So the barriers are up, the walls are closed. Now you have a place to hide the, for the bombs that are going to fall and like knock down everything. Um, then you have to have the ability to come out and fight. So now in fighting, that's where you can talk about, okay, based on the weapons you have, Right, so ideally, in a best case scenario of an urban defense of those three to five men, one of them would have an anti-tank weapon. Okay, the enemy can't get into your city without a tank. To be to be frank, really, yeah, can't do it. Uh, I I would have thought so. uh, Again, this is not my expertise, right? But they always talk about boots on the ground have to control the the city. So it's not enough to you know have planes fly over whatever. So it's you can't just take it with infantry. I'm a, so I spent 25 years in the, in, in the infantry. That's a hell no. Uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, I stand corrected. So yeah, that, okay, I, I, because, I got you. So right, I mean, yeah, I'd so, like to have a tank supporting me too if I was infantry. But I was under the impression it was infantry that had to do that, and that's why we revere infantry. No, so think about it. So and this is the analogy I use, and as a defender, this is what you have to think about. If an infantryman walks down the street. And you're in the urban defense. It doesn't matter what you have. I mean, that's a dead infantryman. Uh, sure. That's like walking down the street with your eyes closed. Because you as the defender can, you pick, you can see the attacker coming from a long ways away. He can't see you. Right. You, you decide when to open fire or, or to, to attack, not them. So okay. This is why if in, for any military that's attacking an urban area, like, especially a defense, this isn't about like going to get Osama bin Laden and using the element of surprise. Um, that's a right. different urban fight. He has to have 
mobile protected firepower, a tank, a bulldozer, a mechanized infantry vehicle. And he has to have the infantry with those vehicles to protect it from anti-tank weapons and things like that. But yeah, an infantry platoon, let's say 40, 100, 1,000 infantrymen walking into a city that's defended by, it's just a lot of dead infantrymen. Wow. Okay. The, the Russians don't seem to mind that. I mean, historically, uh, they, they, they tend to follow a different doctrine of just putting people into the meat grinder, but, but I, that makes sense what you're saying. So, so this is why having the javelins and other weapons are so critically important to them because if they can keep the tanks out, if I'm hearing you correctly, they can keep, they can hang out to their city as long as they can eat. Absolutely. And it's really, it's really hard to siege a city if it has a massive underground network. Wow. Okay, so they have to fight. Now, tell me about the fight itself. Yeah, so the fight has to be, again, you're in the defense, so it's surprise is your advantage, not the, the attacker. It's surprise from Sun Tzu to today. Surprise is the most powerful thing in, in warfare. You get to pick the point of attack. So then there's the aspect of ambushes. This is mm -hmm. basically a surprise attack. The enemy has no idea of where you are in the city. Your barriers are up. They have to get into the city. They have to, they have to stop at those barriers. Now, they, you want to make them fear every time they stop, not knowing where you're going to attack. So in my three, five-man group is the anti-tank gunner, right? So if he hasn't, but in some situations, they just won't have anti-tank guns. But if they do, like you said, that, that, a javelin can hit a tank two miles away. This, this would end before you even get to the gates of the castle. Um, number two is a sniper. And by sniper, it doesn't have to be like a military-trained sniper, right? I have civilians in my little group. I'm going to take one of those civilians, put them inside a building, preferably a concrete steel rebar reinforced building overlooking a barrier that I put in place mm -hmm. uh, on a second or third level floor. Because a lot of the guns of a modern military can't even elevate up to the high levels of the floor. I'm going to put a civilian in a room. I'm going to have them practice shooting at that barrier. Uh, so they're, they're, what they have to do to do marksmanship is a lot less. Yeah, yeah. And shoot from inside the room so that even when the soldier falls who's trying to get over that barrier, he'll have no clue where it is. Wow. Soldiers fear snipers. I feared snipers in Baghdad. And we had a problem with just a few snipers that were trained. So that was a lot different. But they fear the unknown. And if, sure. So when if you imagine this attack happening, my three to five man group, one of an anti-tank gunner who can hit any tank, especially if it stops at my barrier, but even far away, a sniper who can create chaos in any person who's not inside of a vehicle. Mm -hmm. uh, and then basically, depending if I have a machine gun or a, just a rifle, on the other side of the street, creating this funnel, right? Because I get all these, the advantage of the urban train. Yeah, you want to pen in. That's right. And I don't have to build bunkers. If, if I was defending an open terrain or in wooded terrain, I'd have to spend months digging bunkers and trenches and things like that. Sure. Right? Go outside in your neighborhood. There's, an, there's a bunker right there. It's called a building. Uh, there's so much that you can use and create chaos. And then the three to five man group has to also be ready to move. So in a, the attack like this is called the hit and run attacks. Uh, so again, military formation will be different. In my three and five man civilian group, we're going to have a place to attack overlooking our barrier, which is going to slow or stop the, the whoever it is, 
And then we're going to have a way to quickly get out of the building and maneuver to another firing location in our neighborhood or on our street. You can do that by putting the holes in the walls. We call them mouse holes uh, and tunnels underneath buildings. Because so if I'm the infantry, you know, the infantrymen or the, the military attacking the, and I come to a barrier and I get hit, the first thing I'm going to do is back up and I'm going to call for fire on anything right, that, on that place. And you don't want to still be there. Right. Right. So I would teach my three to five man group how to attack like that, quickly move, move to a known location, hopefully behind the person now who is in front of my barrier and attack them again. Um, defense is about this, that aspect of the mobile defense. So, so you want to move them back or forward to attack but, them again? Uh, it depends on the situation. Uh, you know, the, the most powerful kind of attack to, to, to include what Russia experienced in Grozny in the 1990s was an ambush that hits the front vehicle and amber and, and the rear it's vehicle rear. at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so now it's just chaos. So now it's now it's a shooting gallery. Yeah, yeah, and they can't get out. Uh, that would be the perfect scenario, right? Is to allow in, in my mini manual. I call it the basically the kill zone. You allow the enemy to come into this block and you trap them into it, and you just take them apart and, and destroy them all. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So what's next? So you've You've moved them, you got the tunnels, you got them into the fight, you have them all located, and then they hit, and then they, boom, they disappear again. What's next? Uh, so if I can do this effectively, uh, I need equipment. So to be honest, I, we train this in ranger school. In an ambush, uh, if you can eliminate and, and cause the enemy to pull back or, or, or ideally kill everything on that city street, you want to, within minutes, Practice raiding it, moving yeah. to it, taking every weapon, every bit of water, and every bit of food that you can grab. And I would actually train them on time. Within two wow. minutes, you're going to move up onto the objective. You're going to take everything you can, and then you're going to move away. Because that will become key on your ability to keep fighting, right? Urban warfare takes four times the amount of ammo any other environment does. Why is that? Uh, just because of the nature of how close it becomes and uh -huh. how hard it is to hit somebody inside of a building and the amount of fire that you have to have it, historically huh. and analytically it takes four times the amount of ammo. It doesn't matter if you're attacking or defending. Well, that's really interesting. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought that I would have thought out in the open spaces that you'd be spe uh, spending so much more, but that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. And as a leader at, at the small unit level too, you have to really, um, and this has been shown in the past too. That is, people that are scared will overshoot, right? They'll just what we call prey and spray, right? So some of that is is teaching them that discipline, some, some fire shots. discipline, yeah, fire discipline. Because your ammo will become critical if this turns into a, a very protracted slugfest, which it won't. I mean, I I think one at this point, I don't think the Russians are going will, will attempt it. But this would be how I built my defense. But that aspect of training them to raid or, or get up onto the kill zone, take everything they can, uh, and then move back and, and get prepared to fight again would be that critical last step. Um, now, part of my of this, right? If you could just do that over and over again, uh, I'm telling you, it would be immensely effective and, and really 
turn your city into what we call the meat grinder, mm-hmm. but they, they just keep feeding soldiers and, and forces in and they'll exhaust themselves, to be honest. Now you have to do things as a leader of a small group like that to ensure you can continue to fight. And that includes, to be honest, simple things that we don't even think of, like hand washing. Yeah, so disease and sickness has caused more injuries in war than bullets. Yeah, wow. So in the, before really the last 50 years, it was 80% of the casualties were what we call non-combat related injuries, sickness and disease. Um, okay. Because it, in this environment, right, especially in the urban environment where we know, I mean, COVID taught us a lot. We reminded people that don't know how fast sickness and disease can spread in a right. um, confined space. Oh, you're living underground. You're breathing the same air. Uh, you're dirty. Uh, your dysentery can ravish a fighting force. Um, okay. So, so, so you got the fight. You're surprising them. You're moving to a new location. You're taking care of hygiene. What else do you need to do? I, like As you're sequencing this, you've gotten your first few teams deployed. Now what? Do you need to somehow coordinate them or do they operate as independent cells or what? Yeah, I, I, to be honest, um, if you had enough of me, right, enough individual leaders to train, so some of this is training your own leaders and right. you would pull back and bring leaders together, um, I would be, what we know works in war is decentralized operations. Okay. So these three to five man groups with assigned sectors, and if you're the person in the middle, you have a, you know where basically you have these groups, and you, you want hundreds of those. So I, there's no collective aspect of this to me. Now there is a bit of flexibility you have to have. Mm-hmm. So you do have to have, be able to communicate to these groups, because the enemy is going to try to penetrate. They're not going to try to come down every street. Um, they're going to try to penetrate in a sure. very yeah, they're gonna mass. A major thoroughfare is probably more desirable for a tank than an alley. Sure, right. absolutely. Uh, so you have to have what, and this is in my book too. The, there's there's only six principles of of defense. One of those, which is huge, is flexibility. So this dispersion is is one of the keys as well, right? You can't have all your forces together. Um, he needs all his forces together to create mass to penetrate. So you need the ability right. to aggregate these small groups rapidly at the moment. That you need that you identify where the enemy is. So, you know, if I was a small group leader, I would have gone into this war with a a, a commercial off the shelf drone. To be honest, I would have Amazoned myself a DJI or something <laughs> like that. There you go. Because yeah, that'd be that'd be incredibly helpful. Yeah, that's it's hard to imagine how helpful that would have been. Yeah, because yeah. the enemy has to mass somewhere to penetrate. He's not going to attack down every street. So once I, if I can fly something out in the f- and, and then I can communicate to my groups where to where to come together when I need them to. Right? I want to keep them apart as much as possible. Uh, some of this, like I said, no cell phones, right? Get rid of the cell phones. Or if you have a cell phone, take the battery and the chip out if possible um, and bring it together when you need it. So this is where some of those higher level military tactics could be incorporated to um, have regular points of communication between groups right so you can send messengers or have a designated time a designated location to come together and uh, discuss distribute ammo um, 
And this is where you get to the kind of collective city of defense. If you're the defense planner, um, how to organize these individual groups safely, um, but also have the ability to bring them together. It's called flexibility when you know where the enemy's coming, right? Because it's not going to send one group. It's going to send a, a massive group. Uh, and if you can pick them apart um, from multiple groups, that's where the collective aspect of this. But no, I, I, I'm pretty strong on three to five man groups, but lots of them. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So to my management professor's ear, I'm hearing empowerment and decentralization is overwhelmingly more important than the the ability to uh, command, control, and and have a central focus. Um, ideally, you'd like to have a little bit of both, or you'd ha like to have a little central focus to to be able to coordinate them. But the, the decentralization is far more important. Absolutely, no this. In the heat of battle, we know that. And that's why, to be honest, why the Russians are falling apart and why you have generals being killed on the battlefield. The seventh, the seventh just was killed. Yeah, uh, because they, they don't have what we, these individual leaders, for us, it's either a junior officer or a non-commissioned officer. They are the, the, really the backbone of your organization. So, yeah, that's, that's a great question. So I know that this was the uh, Soviet military doctrine back in Soviet times, where if you could knock out the top, like below, they don't have any, like, like, like they kept the, the information secret. Our military doctrine was almost the opposite. Like it was fed right down the chain. So, you know, corporal is picking up the, you know, okay, I, I guess I'm in charge. Let's go. We know what the, what the um, mission is. Is that still the case with Russia, the way they, they do it? So they've tried to professionalize a little bit. Um, but when you have a, con a forced conscript element to your military, it's near impossible to really do this across your formation at echelon. Uh, gotcha. So I think they have a mixture of the old and attempting the new. But, but it's, it's not really working out for them. It's not. It's not at all. Wow. I, I always thought that that was a stupid construct to do it that way. Like you just have to just not trust your people at all, which I can understand. And I mean, given the environment, but wow, that's just, it just seems so, so bad. Like so prone for, to defeat. Right. This is, you know, this in business, it's a trade off on investing in your people or investing in your stuff. Right. So they, they've invested in their stuff. And they've and we all thought they had some advanced so long range. They they had outpaced us as we called it in long range artillery, in rockets. But you're seeing now they underinvested in people, and investing in people takes time and really risk, right? So we invest heavily in people. Like people are are the U.S. military's number one cost. Like right. it's it's some people say it's it's it costs too much. Um, but that, that professionalizing of the military costs in the investment of people, a lot of money. Clearly Russia had it off on investing in stuff or people. So when you look at casualty rates, I don't think we spend too much on, on people. I think the amount that we spend on people is a really good investment. Um, like I look, look back at Afghanistan, how many soldiers were, Oh, by the way, Afghanistan, how many? So, uh, as I'm looking at this, the Russians just, um, said that they, they have lost something a little north of a thousand 
soldiers. The U.S. military estimate a week ago was at least 7,000. The uh, Ukrainian estimate was 14, 15,000, 16,000, I think Zelensky said two days ago. Now, the truth's probably between, somewhere between the U.S. estimate and Zelensky's estimate. So let's say it's 10, 12,000, something in that neighborhood. The, the Russians only lost, killed, now we're talking about, right? Not, not just injured, killed. The Russians only lost 15,000 in Afghanistan in 10 years. Like, what am I missing? I mean, something, they're doing something very right in Ukraine. Yeah, I think, I mean, to be honest, like, I, I'm not just tooting my own horn. Urban defense is the most powerful form of war. And wow. if, if you're attempting to invade a, a, a country, one, you, you didn't have the capabilities to do that, and you failed in the first 72 hours, and you gave the Ukrainians the chance to do what I just talked about, you know, all those steps, and they've done them. You can see it in the cities. I mean, huh. Even us. Uh, and we're the best military in the world, and Russia's far from it. And would at this point experience a lot of casualties. Um, and you're talking, you're right. I mean, you can't deny the numbers of burning vehicles that we can all see. Uh, and there was somebody in those vehicles when they got hit. Yeah. The numbers are clearly in the thousands, clearly having an impact to individual units, right? You lose that percentage of casualties at the unit level, mm -hmm. it's hugely impactful to keeping soldiers motivated to keep fighting. Yeah, soldiers don't face death. That's not the way it works. You can't just order people to, okay, go go down this street and die. That's not the way it works. Expand on that thought. I, that, that's really interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, like we talked about, giving people things, we know there's things you have to give even the best soldiers to give Russian soldiers to give them to keep moving forward. People just won't get out of the trench and, and face um, death without a lot of things. It, they have to be fighting for their soldiers to the left and right. They yeah. have to be fighting for their leaders, right? They're, they're in unit level leaders and they have to be fighting for something they believe in, mm -hmm. right? So if you can, in the information domain, if, in like Zelensky has doing, if you can put seeds of doubt in the, the just cause that the soldier is going to die yeah. for. And he's doing such a great job speaking to them directly i'm sure not many of them are hearing it right but he's still putting it out and i think that morale is actually more for his own people than it is for the russians like to, to keep doing it to, to bolster their morale tell, tell me about the place of morale i'm like like, like how valuable is morale all, yeah. compared to pretty much everything else yeah it's it is everything right so napoleon which i just like to use the quote because it's really cool said the the moral is three to one the physical in other aspects, whether it's Wellington's campaign or, or today's military, each individual soldier is a complex individual with his own motivations and his own beliefs. But we know that cohesion and morale are the basically the secret ingredients to have somebody continue to fight and to face death for each other. Once you lose morale and cohesion, uh, Everything unravels. It doesn't matter how many soldiers you have. A motivated, high you know, a group of soldiers or civilians can achieve great feats. I mean, the most decorated U.S. soldier in the U.S. history, Audie Murphy, uh, faced an entire German company atop a burning vehicle 
uh, that he was shooting from by himself. And when he asked why he did it, it was because they were killing my friends. That's wow. the, he had, we know morale and cohesion are the lifeblood of militaries. Once you lose those things, once you get demoralized, you don't believe in your cause and you stop fighting as a group, it's over. You've lost. Wow. So I, I, I want to go so many different directions simultaneously because I, I quoted jo uh, George uh, Marshall on morale. He was given a speech about morale in 1941 before Pearl Harbor, knowing things were coming. And, and let me just quote this. Uh, he said, uh, it's a it's a uh, commencement address. He says, I realize that when you read the daily press, it would appear from the headlines that the War Department is wholly materialistic institution whose only concern is the development and perfection of a machine, a war machine. And then he skips a few lines. He says, it is true that as a daily press points out that we are applying all of our American engine, uh, energy, ingenuity, and genius we can mobilize to the task of equipping our new army with the most modern and efficient weapons in the world in ever-increasing quantity. That's our responsibility, and you expect us to meet it. But underlining all, the effort back of this essentially material and industrial efforts is the realization that the primary instrument of warfare is the fighting man. All of the weapons which we, with which we arm him are merely tools to enable him to carry out his mission. And I think just getting that part straight is what you were just describing, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And every story that we hold dear, Every story of our military or other people's militaries are about men and women achieving feats that you don't think are possible. And it's because of their fight, their will to fight, their, their morale, their cohesion, their motivation. A single soldier can, create, can do amazing things. Think about you know, Chamberlain in Gettysburg. Yeah. I mean, you name it. Um, the, this they can do amazing things and despite all odds with no weapons or with a very little amount of weapons they can defeat the greatest forces in the world and it's across time whether you're talking the spartans at, at the hot gates or you you, you name it but don't tell ever me discredit the the will of the soldier yeah, tell me one last thing. How how important is leadership to this? Is it is it just a matter of um, you know I don't want to see this happen to my block or my buddies or it, how much does leadership amplify this? Yeah, so leadership is the glue that supports all this from the individual to the president. Understanding that how important that will to fight right. So you, you you can survive three weeks without food. That requires motivation. Leadership is about providing purpose motivation and direction so if you don't provide the motivation then none of this works so of course there's an understanding that is the will of the soldier that matters in in war the leaders are the people that keep that motivation going with messages with stories with remember the alamo remember your family remember mariupol leaders have the ability to inspire that motivation in every it doesn't matter if it's a grandma which i hate seeing uh a young man doesn't matter it's leaders that that inspire that motivation to keep fighting so i i always close every episode with a quotation for contemplation and i had selected a quote from uh john j jack uh blackjack pershing right uh so he said to get the best out of your men they must feel that you are their real leader and must know that they can depend on you 
I think that's that's brilliant. I mean, without that, it's if you say um, go up there and fight those bad guys, I'll be back here where it's safe. Okay, guys, it I, I, it doesn't work. If I'm in the trenches, that I mean, that was Chamberlain leading the charge down Little Round Top. He was right there with them, and as he was a general, he was in the front of the line leading with them. Right. Yeah, I, so, uh, just so you know, Pershing, I'm. Is one of my favorite leaders, not just because of what he did, but understanding what he went through as a man. His entire family burned to death while he was fighting in Mexico. And then he was called up months, almost immediately, to go lead the war in World War One. Most people don't know that about that man. Uh, oh. But talk about inspiring your men. Uh, he has seen, I just can't say enough about general Pershing and why he was called blackjack Pershing. Yeah. Integration. That's right. That's right. Okay. So am, am, am I, am I off on that or is Pershing dead on? Dead Cause on. it sounds, it sounds like, look, if, if, if I can trust you. So I say this in my class. So, so we're talking to, to MBA students, that kind of thing. I say, look, if you have my back, you get my heart. That's how leadership works. Yep. It's not about how much time I measure you set, keeping your butt in your chair doing your work. No, if if I have you, if I have proven to you that I, I'll have your back, I get your heart. No, that's, that's spot on. It doesn't matter what field of work you're in. That is spot on. Individuals need leaders that they know are there for them. They care for them. Um, and that doesn't have to be. It's not called friendship. It's called leadership. Uh, <laughs> oh, I am definitely going to use that. That's a great uh, line. But we we're humans. We know when a leader is genuine. I yeah. I wanted leaders that were knew what they that were knew their job, and that I knew had my back. Yeah, for sure. That's right. Okay, John, tell us one last thing before you go. Tell tell us about your book, uh, and you also have a podcast, correct? Yes, yeah, so I have a podcast on all the podcasts. Mediums, that, same as you, Stitcher, iTunes, you name it, called the Urban Warfare Project Podcast. We've had it for years, talking about urban warfare, veterans, experts. Um, I have a book. I have two books coming out, honestly. I have a book coming out in July, a very personal memoir, studying leadership and everything that we just talked about, cohesion in the modern day, uh, called Connected Soldiers, Life, Leadership, and Social Connections in Modern War, uh, available on Amazon for pre-order comes out on July 1st. And I also have a book coming out in September on urban warfare, very specifically on why it's so hard, what's happened in the past, and, and what we'll see in the future. John, I can't thank you enough. This was a, an enlightening time for me. I mean, I'm just, I'm amazed at the the encyclopedic knowledge that you have about how this works. And just, I, I, I would have done it all wrong. I'm glad I wasn't in charge. But I, I hope that the people that are over there right now are, are listening to your tweets and taking, taking points that, that you're feeding them. I, I mean, I saw what you posted on social media, and that's how we even uh, connected to begin with. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.